Hello, my fellow Clement Warriors. This is Matt Myers, and welcome to another episode of Clementech Cocktails, where we grab a drink or two with best-in-class Clementech founders who learn from their life journeys, dive into bleeding-edge technologies, and have a laugh while we're at it. Clementech Cocktails is a CTC Media production. Are you an accredited investor and want to invest in badass, consumer-focused Clementech startups? Are you a Clementech company looking for hardworking people with a sense of humor? Do you want to work in Clementech but don't know where to start? Look no further. Head down the Clementech rabbit hole at clementechcircle.com. My guest today is Jeff Knobs, co-founder and CEO of Zero Acre Farms, a food company replacing destructive vegetable oils with healthier, more sustainable oils and fats made by fermentation. Jeff has co-founded several startups to offer better quality ingredients and nutrition-forward food to people and communities, including the fast casual restaurant chain Katama. In 2020, after seeing a drastic decrease in accessibility to fresh food, Jeff co-founded Help Kitchen to connect food-insecure individuals with partner restaurants for a free meal via text. Jeff also served as a COO of Perfect Keto and general manager of Rakuten, which acquired his first company, Extra Bucks. Jeff also writes about health, nutrition, and sustainability at jeffknobs.com and on Twitter at jeffknobs. Without further ado, enjoy the show. Here we go. Jeff Knobs, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here. Yeah. So what are we drinking this evening? Uh, well, you know, I'll speak for myself. I'm drinking, I don't drink much, but, uh, this is a homemade mead with just two ingredients, um, raw honey and water. And I guess some microbial ingredients that you can't see with the naked eye. Um, but it's been brewing for, for a couple months. So not too long. Oh, wow. Still, still has you know a lot of sweetness from the honey. Hasn't been totally transformed to alcohol. Okay. Uh, a little bit of busyness and, and, um, some light alcohol content. Busyness? Yeah. No, I didn't I did not do that. I'm so sorry. I greatly apologize <laughs> to everybody listening right now. Uh, cool. This is my first time having mead. And which one I didn't are you know drinking? What to yeah. Can you see that? Cool. Or wait, is, is it down here? Is the camera up there? Yeah. I okay. See it, yeah. yeah, it's um bun ratty mead. <laughs> I looked everywhere for mead. It's like carrying my own. It it says underneath it. The drink of Irish medieval banquets. Hmm. So I guess we're at an Irish medieval banquet. I've never I mean, when, tried. When I hear mead, I think medieval. I think of like original <laughs> alcoholic beverage. Hmm. Okay. How is it? Yeah, medieval. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> no, I no, no. I swear I'll stop there. I will stop. People are just going to like basically uh what do they call it cancel me cancel culture they're like there are way too many dad jokes in that podcast uh done um you know i i could picture this at a medieval irish banquet mm-hmm. probably oh, i'm half british so i don't know if they like welcome me there yeah who knows mm-hmm. cool do you know what percentage alcohol is in that mead i don't know for this one i think it basically depends on how long you ferment it for Mm-hmm. And so the longer you ferment it, the more that the the sugar and honey is converted into alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, this is pretty light. I would just based on taste, I would guess it's like a light beer, you know, yeah. like, I don't know, three, four or 5% alcohol. 
Yeah. This one's got 15. So, you know, it's nice. up there. Yeah, we should talk to yeah, we should, we should talk to Melly Bio about making some mead, right? True. I mean, you could as long as it's full of sugar, it'll. Uh, I guess it might not have the natural microbes mm. on it because you need to ferment raw honey, um, mm. so that they may need to add some some microorganisms. But the sugar would be there. Okay. Well, we'll ask them if they're able to do that. Yeah, we'll say it's it'll be a booming business a great revenue stream for them and uh then you can serve it in your restaurant right mm-hmm. yep we could indeed. yeah so you have a couple of restaurants well now there's two right you just opened a new location you want to tell folks about your restaurant do a plug here yeah we just opened a location in oakland california and we have um, another location in san francisco and uh yeah matt we actually opened delivery only locations in in LA, in Hollywood, oh. uh, a couple in Hollywood, and then also in Houston, Texas. Whoa. And there's another handful around the kind of Bay Area. Um, and yeah, it's called Catava. It's like healthy, fast, casual. We obsess over our, our sourcing and sustainability of ingredients. Um, and it, it's actually partly what led me to founding Zero Acre. Um, but yeah, I've, I've been thinking about and working on food for, for quite some time. And it all, it all started with Catava. So I get LA, right? It makes total sense. I get Bay Area, again, total sense. But why Houston? Now, this is coming from a Texan. I'm curious why Houston and how that's going so far. (laughs) Yeah, a bit of a curveball with that one. Yeah. Well, for exactly that reason, actually, you know, we could have gone to, say, Austin. That would have probably made a bit more sense Um, or New York or Denver or Seattle or whatever. But uh we wanted to test in Houston because we felt that if it could be validated there, if the concept could be validated there, and if Catawba were successful in Houston, then it could probably be successful anywhere. Mm. Maybe That's not a very anywhere, good point. But you know, it's a better it's a better kind of broad mainstream test. Yeah. So people who are listening in Houston, Texas, we probably have a few, or in Texas in general, you end up going to Houston, go to Catawba and support. Right. Thank you. Um, I'm actually I have not been. I have to admit, but I'm going to go with Brian Spears from New Age Meats. I don't know if you know Brian or not. I don't know Brian. Okay. Well, we were going to get together for dinner and it's been hanging out there a few days and uh, he was like, oh, where? And I hadn't thought of any place. And then I was preparing for this podcast. I was like, well, we should just go to Catawba. And he said he goes there all the time. So I like Brian already. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, He's cultivating meat. So maybe at, uh, I mean, do you, do you all serve meat there or no? We serve, uh, so most of the menu items are vegan by default, but you can optionally add protein mm-hmm. and, um, you know, we try to get the highest quality protein that we can source regenerative meat, that sort of thing. But yeah, you'll, you know, if, if you don't eat meat, you'll have no problem finding anything there. Well, maybe in a future you will have new age meats, cultivated meats, on the Catava menu. Anything's um, possible. <laughs> anything is possible. That's why we do this podcast, man. That's why we do what we do to make <laughs> the impossible possible. Um, yep. So I want to like get a little bit into the health side of things here because we don't do that very often. We just, you know, drink alcohol and talk about, you know, climate tech. So I have a question. It's just my own curiosity. It's a very good question. Mm-hmm. 
are French fries a vegetable? Go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it depends who you ask. And they are technically made primarily with a root vegetable, potato. You know, French fries are just potatoes and fat and salt. And mm-hmm. most people would consider like a nice, you know, oven baked rosemary potato or something with a little sea salt, maybe with some olive oil to be a totally acceptable, healthy, you know, side dish. But then as yeah. soon as it's French fries, which are also just potatoes, you know, oil and a little salt, all of a sudden it's like the worst thing you could eat and very unhealthy, um, mm. which I think is interesting from sort of a you know perception standpoint. Uh, but yeah, there are different, it's sort of like is tomato, you know, is a tomato a fruit or a vegetable? Um, and part of the confusion in, in, in answering these questions is we, there are multiple ways of categorizing foods, either from yeah. a um, botany perspective or a culinary perspective, and they don't always overlap, which is what leads to some of these conundrums like, you know, is, is, is our potatoes vegetables? <laughs> right. And I brought that up because apparently a lot of uh, school kids these days in the United States, they think that french fries are a vegetable right because they're just like served as a vegetable in school lunches which is awesome like getting your vegetables from uh, the tomato sauce and pizza <laughs> hey don't judge um so so uh okay here's another question that's a little more serious and i think you'll have fun with what's the uncanny food valley and how do we get out of it mm. um have have you heard of the uncanny valley in robotics and artificial intelligence? I'm going to say no. I had it until I read your blog and now I do, but let's just say no. No. Okay. Yeah. So the un, the uncanny valley in um in AI or robotics re- refers to the point where the artificial intelligence is um not yet good enough to be, you know, to pass as a regular human. Um but is better than and too good to be like a cute little fuzzy toy. So like mm-hmm. a doll that, you know, says a few words, if you consider that AI is like cute enough to not be threatening. And if that doll were, you know, looked like me or you and, and talked like me or you, it would be so good that it wouldn't be eerie, but in between it's like too good to be cute, but not good enough to be, um, uh, not eerie. And so it ends up just being really creepy. And so for anyone mm. listening, if you, Google Uncanny Valley and like look at images, you'll just see a bunch of really creepy, almost human looking robots. That's the Uncanny Valley. Um, And the Uncanny Valley in food, in my opinion, is sort of like the teenage years of awkwardness where you're not yet a cute kid or you're, you're, you know, you're, you're past being a cute kid, but you're not yet like a fully grown adult. You're, you're like lanky and have acne and talk weird and your voice cracks and all that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, I think there's a transition period in food as well where we're not just like hunting and gathering, but we're also not so, you know, so tuned into what we eat and fully understand the impact that food has on us and understand how we can produce it for today's world and today's environment. You know, we're no longer eating woolly mammoths and and digging up root vegetables uh, with our own, with our own hands. We live in a totally Mm -hmm. different environment. And so if we want our food to match our modern environment, some changes are going to have to be made but we don't yet fully understand the impact of the changes we're making, like introducing high fructose corn syrup and trans fats and, you know, all sorts of other foods that we find out later were a bad idea. 
Um, and eventually I think we'll get out of the uncanny Valley, but I think we're still sort of in it. Mm. It's like we, we embraced science and created these foods and like some of them, many of them ended up being very bad for us. And now we're using science again to make foods that are better for us. Yeah, right. It's, it's like, like learning it, our lesson. It, it, that... it gets worse before it gets better is another way to think about it. You know, okay. if, you, if you think of a valley, you like, you know, you're, if you're on flat ground and you walk into the valley, you're yeah. kind of going down for a while before you walk back up to, to uh, flat ground. And I think in the case of food, you know, especially in the 20th century, you know, late 1900s, 1980s, 1990s, with the advent of packaged foods and snack wall cookies and, you know, fat is the enemy, but sugar is your friend and, you know, all, all of that. Um, yeah, we just got into some really weird foods. I mean, when you think of things like Cheetos, like that's weird or Funyuns or like Funyuns yeah. replacing onions, like a real food. Gross, Funyuns yeah. are way tastier, but like they're pretty creepy when you think about, yeah. you know, what, what an actual food is and then what a Funyun is. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, so so I think we'll, we'll get it over time, but, you know, we, we were, and, and I don't know if we're, you know, at the bottom or on the way up or still on the way down, I'm not sure, but um, packaged foods certainly sent us down into the uncanny Valley. Um, and I think some combination of, you know, the right types of agriculture and the right types of technology, uh, are, are going to be how we get out of the uncanny Valley. So what got you, I was advised to ask, you know, it's a two part thing kind of, it's like about ask about your family and how you got into your health journey. And I mean, was this like prior to like you being in the e-commerce world? Like you, you started e-commerce company, sold it. Yay. Was this like, you know, then, or was it just after that, that you got into health? You know, what about your family might have to do with that? Uh, I was advised to bring that up. For some reason, I was very interested in health from an early age. I remember in middle school turning over like beverages and looking at how much sugar it had in it. And mm. I was, you know, 11 or whatever. I had no business doing that, but I did for some reason. Um, and, and so it was, it was like very surface level nutrition. Um, you know, it was maybe just looking at sugar or just trying to like not eat, uh, packaged foods, but mainly sugar. And, and then I was just a kid and whatever. I did my thing for a while. And it, it wasn't until, um, my late teens, early twenties, I, both my parents passed away from chronic diseases. Um, oh, and that's when sort of, you know, I, I had sort of a paradigm shift on and, and sort of looking into, you know, does this happen to other people? And turns out it happens to a lot of other people. Um, and six in 10 Americans have a chronic disease and four in 10 six Americans ten. have multiple. Yeah. 60% of adults in America have a chronic disease. And four in 10 have multiple chronic diseases. So like, if you, you know, go to, I don't know, an, an airport in, in, in uh, the middle of the country, look around 40% mm -hmm. of the adults you see have heart disease and diabetes or cancer Jeez. and dementia, you know, at least it's, it's crazy. The stats are super sad. And so that, that was sort of an accelerant uh, for me to really figure out what makes people sick and to try to do something about it. And on that journey, I also realized, you know, as I got deeper down the rabbit hole of food, that there's this whole other variable as well we should optimize for, which is the environmental impact of food. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, trying to trying to find the foods that I thought were truly good for humans and truly good for the planet ended up not being super straightforward or simple. And everyone has a different opinion. And that led me to doing my own research, which led me to coming up with my own conclusions and opinions and ultimately led me to oils and fats as a lead domino for both the health side of things and the sustainability side of things. Well, why I'm really, uh, you know, sorry to hear about that. And, you know, maybe like the silver lining is that that experience, um, drove you to just drill down on what you're doing now and then helping reduce chronic disease in the United States ultimately. Right. Um, and so how yeah. did we get here with 60% of us adults having one or more chronic diseases? Like, and I'll preface this why I, I think it's really interesting I mean, people go to your blog, but lots of people don't like to read anymore. So maybe you could just like walk us through really quickly um, how you got to what's driving it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. And, you know, I have a couple of kind of like first principle viewpoints on this. One is looking back, you know, you can, I mean, whether you're looking back at photos or, you know, more subjective qualitative records or the, the quantitative health reporting we were doing, you know, to the extent you believe it or think it's accurate 100 years ago, um, you know, all signs point to this hasn't been an issue forever. We were talking about our mead from medieval times, and mm. it's not like six out of 10 people had, you know, diabetes and heart, heart disease and dementia. Um, and it wasn't like, I think the stat now in the U.S. is something like 42% of Americans are obese. You know, this is a, a, a somewhat recent phenomenon. Um, and and so if if we're looking at what is potentially the culprit for this, you know, there are potentially numerous answers, but um, it, it's probably something that has also gone way up since chronic disease rates started increasing. You know, if, if, we, if we haven't consumed any more of something, uh, or have consumed less of it, and chronic disease rates continue to climb. That's that's probably not the leading driver, um, and and so I think that's kind of like, you know w one way to look at it. And then if there are randomized controlled trials on the subject, you know that's that's quite helpful to see what what those show. Um, there are large scale observational studies, but those aren't always reliable because you know that's showing correlation, not causation. Um, and but you know the the punchline is I think it comes down to a few things. Um, you know, we, we, no one knows for sure, but you you look at what the CDC says, and you know I, I've tried to kind of validate each of those things, and um, and and it seems like diet and lifestyle is you know is clearly at the center of that. Um, exercise and physical physical activity seems to play a role, but our bodies are really good at wanting to be at their kind of weight set point, and our bodies want to stay healthy. Um, so if we exercise less, you know, we typically eat less. If we exercise more, we eat more and it kind of, you know, not too much changes, but there are certain foods that seem to change, um, our hormones, our society signals, our hunger signals, and kind of the, the key foods in my mind are refined seed oils, flours, and sugars. You know, mm -hmm. those three foods are foods that as humans, we never ate much in our evolutionary history. And, um, you know, now they're a significant portion of our diets. And in my opinion, those foods are, are at the center of a, a lot of our chronic disease issues. You know, smoking cigarettes doesn't do us any favors, but we're doing 
or drinking too much alcohol, um, but we're doing way <laughs> you know less of those things than we have in previous decades. And unfortunately, chronic disease rates still continue to climb. Mm. And so uh, then what led you, is that kind of like what led you to focusing on seed oils then? Yeah, it was, it was that. And then looking at all the science of, you know, especially the randomized controlled trials, what happens when we consume a lot of these seed oils? And for folks listening, seed oils refer to soybean oil, safflower oil, canola oil, cottonseed oil, corn oil, um, uh, oils pressed from seeds and grains in amounts that would be impossible to consume if you just, you know, if you were eating the actual real food. Um, mm-hmm. Like you'd have to eat something like 100 cobs of corn to get a few tablespoons of corn oil. You know, it doesn't mean corn is like horrible for you, but you would never eat 100 years of corn. Um, So it's like by definition, a highly processed food, you know, that that you can't consume when you're eating a whole foods diet. Um, And and so when you look at the randomized controlled trials, well, what happens when you eat a bunch of this stuff? It's not good. Um, You know, whether you're looking at heart disease or, you know, even something like uh, migraines, you know, there's really good data. And again, randomized controlled trials, gold standard of evidence showing, showing harm. Um, and then from a correlation standpoint, seed oils, broadly speaking, are the food that has increased most in line with increasing rates of chronic disease and obesity. So it sort of checks out from a you know broader correlation standpoint. Um, and then there's just kind of the intuitive piece of, well, if I had to eat 100 ears of corn or 3,000 sunflower seeds, you know, to get a few tablespoons of this oil, mm-hmm. is that something that I should be consuming as 20% of my calories, which is what the average American does today. Um, so that's kind of the health side of things. And then, and then, yeah, I really started nerding out on the sustainability and climate impact of these oils. And, um, and, and so when you look at what causes, for example, deforestation, which is the leading contributor to climate change after fossil fuel combustion, um, two of the top three causes are uh, oil, are, are vegetable oil crops, vegetable oil, seed oil, sort of synonymous. Um, it's, you know, beef, number one, oil crops, number two. And mm. there were, I don't know, a thousand companies working on beef and, you know, alternative proteins. Um, there wasn't one company that I knew of that was working on creating replacements for these seed oils that could be healthier and more sustainable. Um, so that ultimately leaded, led to leaded. <laughs> How many sips of uh, this mead did I have? That ultimately <laughs> led to starting zero two. <laughs> yeah, and so um, to dive a little more into the environmental side of things, uh, not every seed oil is created equally when it comes to environmental impact. Correct. And what does that diagram look like? Yeah, uh, that's absolutely right. You know, it's just like proteins um, comparing the environmental impact of, of different proteins. In the case of seed oils, it's um, yeah. S- some are better or worse for different aspects of um, the environment. So, you know, the things we typically look at are greenhouse gas emissions, um, land use, and water consumption. And some oils or, or the crops behind them that are you know better for one or maybe the worst in in another category, unfortunately. And the the worst offenders, uh, you know, this is what's especially annoying. The worst offenders from a um, climate and environment standpoint are actually some of the healthier oils. And so it's sort of like pick your poison. You know, do you want to do what's good by Mm. you or good by the planet? And Mm. a good example of this is olive oil. The the olives of fruit, technically. Um, So is avocado. The 
the fruit oils tend to be worst for the environment, um, but they also tend to be the least impactful on, uh, you know, from a health standpoint in a negative way. So things like olive oil and avocado oil are, are fruits. Um, coconuts and palm are technically also, fruit, also fruits. A lot of people know about you know, the, the impact of palm oil and rainforests and on biodiversity. Um, olive oil is sort of like the almond of the oil crop world. It, it's only it, it's second only to almonds and nuts when it comes to uh, water consumption. So it's an extremely thirsty crop. So are avocados. Uh, it requires a ton of irrigation to produce olive oil um, in a you know in an economic way. Uh, palm is obvious. Coconut is actually um, per liter of oil has uh, threatens biodiversity more than any other oil out there because of where it grows in the tropics. Um, you know, a lot of people consider coconut oil a healthy oil, sort of depends on your views of saturated fat. Um, and, and then, yeah, the, the seed oils like canola oil has uh, is a little bit lower than other oils, so is sunflower on climate impact, but it's not a very it's not a very high bar being lower in that category is still, you know, fairly high. Um, but those, those, those crops, you know, like sunflower has a huge land footprint, huge water footprint. Um, so yeah, it sort of just depends on kind of what you're, you know, what you're optimizing for. Hmm. You must be a really difficult person to eat out with. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> difficult. I'm difficult for myself too. I get annoyed, you know, it, it, I, I wish I had an easier time just being like, Oh, whatever. I'm going to go have some fried food. But you know, when I look at that fried food, I see what's in it and where it came from and what went into it. And then, uh, I know what oil they're probably using. And yeah, I, I'm, I'm definitely that guy when eating out, you know, asking the the server what they're cooking, what they're cooking everything in. Um, and, and the answer is usually not very good. Yeah. Um, and before we get to the business side of things, um, I'm just kind of curious then what your eating habits are like, like, are you, for example, you know, slaughtering one cow a year and then, uh, eating every part of it, but also actually slaughtering another cow and like carrying it up and down the block and carrying a bit more of the cow every day up and down the block so that you can, you know, increase your physical stamina and strength. Is that like kind of what you're doing? You read that blog post too, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I did. I was like, wow, oh. this guy is, uh, it's not human, <laughs> which of course it isn't true, but I was like, wow, that, that's impressive. Or maybe I've un escaped the uncanny valley. Yeah. As, uh, um, yeah. That that a lot. I got a lot of concerned calls from my friends the day I wrote that blog post. <laughs> like Jeff, I think you've gone too far. Uh, <laughs> there, yeah, that was uh, that blog post was a bit of a joke. But you know, every every joke has a, a bit of humor in it, which is what makes it joke. Um, uh -huh. I don't do that. But yeah, my, my diet is, um, you know, I, I try to focus on foods that are going to be best for me and best for the planet. And um, that's what I optimize for. There are other people to optimize, for example, for, you know, like animal welfare and ethics or may optimize for, you know, eating, eating local and community. Um, I don't think there's any one right way. But yeah, for me, it's, it's what's going to be best for the environment and what's going to be best for me. Um, you know, and my family, cause I'm feeding my 
uh, six month old, the same thing I'm eating, you know, giving him little spoonfuls of dinner. So I want to make sure it's good for him as well. And uh, so for me, that means uh, eating a bunch of vegetables and root vegetables and occasionally frying French fries because potatoes and fat and salt is a delicious combo. Um, and I, I don't really eat any chicken or pork. Um, like I don't really eat poultry because, uh, or, yeah, or, or like pork meat. Um, if I eat beef, it's from regenerative farms. And mm-hmm. that's because, you know, beef is super nutrient dense. Um, and like 99% of beef is grown in a super environmentally unfriendly way. But a very tiny percentage of beef, you know, you have to be um, in a in a good enough financial position to afford it right now. Uh, but it's from regenerative farms, which at least according to like the one or two LCAs out there actually are carbon negative, which is which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the water that they're consuming is, you know, rain fed. Uh, but, you know, yeah, con- that's also a controversial topic. Um, I love fruit. I eat a lot of fruit. And fruit is pretty low on, you know, across all the charts when it comes to kind of like resource intensiveness and love my, love my smoothies, just keep a bunch of frozen fruit in the freezer, buy fresh fruit from the farmer's market. And we have nine, nine fruit trees in our backyard that I'm looking at right now um, that hopefully start bearing fruit in the next year or two here. Amazing. I love it. And so let's kind of switch to the uh, business side. Uh, Do you just talk a little bit about your, your pathway to entrepreneurship because I, I briefly touched upon it earlier in the conversation, but can you kind of walk us through a little bit your your entrepreneurship journey? Yeah, um, you know, my, my dad was always an entrepreneur. And so I think it was a totally normal path for me. And from an early age, I was just sort of like, yeah, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. Obviously, isn't that what like adult Everybody people does. do? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, Isn't that what all masochists and, do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. Uh, my mom was a nurse and most most of my family on, on that side were in medicine, um, whether you know, MDs, doctors, nurses. And so I think like looking back now, it's you know, I can kind of connect the dots, um, sort of the combination of like mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of like medical nutrition, trying to help people with entrepreneurship. And so back in middle school when I was, you know, looking at like sugar on Cokes and whatever. Um, I was also doing things like selling custom music CDs to other students and pre-ordering Harry Potter books and then reselling them (laughs) on eBay and doing things that I thought was just like what normal kids did. But it was like, Oh no, that's actually not everyone did that. Um, so I think there was some, yeah, there was definitely some, some early entrepreneurial tendencies. Um, and, and then in, in college, a buddy and I decided we should start a business and, so we did, and that ended up turning into this uh, seven-year journey. The business was ultimately acquired. It was in, in the e-commerce space. Um, and I moved to China for a couple of years to, to manage the operations for the acquiring company. Did that stint and then moved back to California to, to get into food in my mid-20s. And so my first foray into food um, started a meal delivery service, and that did its thing for a couple of years. It was pretty stressful. Um, we were changing the menu every day and it was awesome for customers, not awesome for our operations or bottom line. And, um, it was called meal made. And we ended up pivoting that. Um, I teamed up with a buddy who was running a corporate catering company. We joined forces to open Catawba, you know, brick and mortar restaurant 
and sort of had these three prongs of, of um, delivery, catering, and, and restaurant. And now Catawba has been doing great. Um, my business partner runs the show there now. And, and then I went on to do some other stuff in food. Um, but, but this, this problem of oils was always sort of in the back of my mind since, uh, like 20, no, 10 years ago, 2013, maybe even before then 2012, 2011. Mm. Um, and so with Catawba, you know, we were trying to use good oils, but it was just really hard. And, and then, you know, that, that sort of is what led to, um, uh, maybe, maybe mm. something, someone should do something about this and, and offer a better oil. Yeah. Did living in Asia impact the way that you viewed food and or uh, how you viewed oil and its relationship with food? Um, you know, it was hard because I, I never became fluent in Chinese. So there was probably there were probably all sorts of you know parts of the culture that I just didn't have access to or didn't understand or couldn't. I was, I was very limited to like the foods I could buy just based on communication. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think what I appreciated more than anything or missed more than anything maybe was having access to local farmers markets and whole foods and things like that, where um, not to say that food doesn't exist in where I lived in Shanghai, because it totally does. I just, my communication skills weren't good enough to really understand sourcing practices of different farmers and, and things like that. <clears throat> um and it's one of the things I was craving when I moved back to California. And I remember spending some, you know, way too much money at Whole Foods on my first, mm. uh, my first Whole Foods visit back after living in China for two years and seeing all the new, cool, healthy stuff and just kind of buying everything. Um, yeah. One, one thing, so I don't know if it had a big impact, but there, there was something that stood out related to oil in China, which is the use of gutter oil. You heard about this at yeah. all? Yeah. Um, so that's pretty gross. Yeah. And, uh, and maybe do at least saying like, okay, that's what one end of the extreme spectrum looks like when it comes to bad oil. Let's see what's on the other extreme. Oh yeah, I I, yeah, I asked that because of that issue and also just how prevalent oil is in the dishes that are made, um, especially in China. And for me, it's not about me, but just you know my uh, you know alarm bell went off in my head when I would travel around Southeast Asia. And just see the amount of deforestation, you know, just driving through Southeast Asia, and a lot of it was due to palm, right? That's right. So, so that That's like right. once, yeah, if once somebody sees that, like really understands understands the scale of it, then they understand the importance of oil, and not just mm-hmm. you know fossil fuels here, folks, but like you know all types of oil, and um, so transitioning to back to oil sorry Uh, real quick pre-transitioning other not so fun fact the number one cause of lung cancer in Mm -hmm. chinese women who don't smoke cooking oil fumes wow yeah they found that yeah uh yeah a study um there was one study that showed that and there was another study that found that um people who ate more vegetables had higher rates of, uh, cancer. I believe it was cancer. I don't want to misquote this. Um, I'm almost positive it was cancer. It may have been a a different, um, pathology, but there was a lot of confusion on why the heck would people with, you know, they eat more vegetables have higher, higher incidence of of this pathology. And they kind of dug in further and realized that it was because vegetables in China are almost exclusively eaten uh, you know, heated in a bunch of oil in a wok or in, you know, some mm-hmm. other application. 
And so vegetable consumption was almost directly tied to oil consumption. Um, wow. And it may have actually been the oil that was causing this, this pathology as opposed to the, wow. uh, the vegetables. Crazy, crazy. Um, and so on that note, what what's in your oil? Like what makes your oil? Why is it healthier? Why is it better for the environment? So the main issue, we can start with the health side. The main issue with oils that makes them unhealthy is the types of fats that they're made of, the types of fatty acids that they're made of. So most people have probably heard of saturated fat. That's kind of like one of four main categories of fats. The other three are trans fats, which people have probably also heard of. You know, they're now um, artificial trans fats are illegal to to use in any meaningful quantities in foods as of only five years ago, actually. Um, And then there are monounsaturated fats, which are uh, found in things like olives and avocados and macadamia nuts and our oil, and then polyunsaturated fats. Polyunsaturated fats are the broader category for things like omega-3 fats, which people know from maybe things like fish or flax seeds, uh, and omega-6 fats, which are sort of the evil cousin of omega-3 fats. They compete for each other for um, enzymatic pathways in our bodies. So the, mayo, the more omega-6 you consume, the less omega-3 you're able actually to, you're able to utilize. Um, mm. So to, to zoom, zoom out of the, the lipid science lesson there, um, our, our oil is primarily monounsaturated fat, which is to answer your question, you know, what makes it so great? It's uh, of all oils out there, it has the lowest levels of saturated fats, no trans fat, um, and the lowest levels of omega-6 fats. So uh, it's really healthy. You know, it, it's sort of, it's sort of uh, <clears throat> no matter who you ask, you know, it has, it has a really healthy fat profile. And then because of how it's made, which is by fermenting sugarcane uh, into oil, you know, no residual sugar, sugarcane is completely transformed into oil. Because of that way of producing, it has a very low environmental footprint. Sugarcane actually out of all crops in the world is the, sing- the single highest yielding uh, plant. It-, it produces more energy per acre than any other crop out there. And mm. so, you know, we could just eat the raw sugar, but <clears throat> uh, not exactly a nutritious food. We think it w- makes way more sense to ferment all that abundant sugar that grows in sugarcane into healthy fats. Um, so as a result, the oil from from Zero Acre, uh, we have about a 10x smaller environmental footprint across land use, greenhouse gas emissions, you know, CO2 equivalent, um, and water consumption compared to vegetable oil, something like a soybean oil. And so how did you get to this solution? Like, well, what did that journey look like? And how long did that take? Years. Um, I was banging my head against the wall trying to figure out the solution could be to replace these problematic oils. And, you know, I looked at everything from olives to avocados to like obscure tropical nuts and seeds. Um, you know, what can we use animal fats? You know, is there like a, some regenerative animal fat that um, would be uh, a, a good alternative here? And, you know, long story short, there wasn't. And either for health reasons or sustainability reasons or both, um, there, there was just no oil out there that I felt was actually good for us, was actually good for the planet, and had any chance of displacing seed oils at scale. You know, like your your grandmother's fresh made extra virgin olive oil from her backyard olive tree 
you know, that, that may be great for you and, and great for our health. Um, but that's not scalable. And it's not going to ever make its way into a deep fryer. It has too strong of a flavor, too strong of a taste. It's not ever going to make its way into, you know, a salad chain, salad dressings, because it solidifies when it's refrigerated. Um, seed oils serve a purpose. You know, they, they taste very neutral. They're liquid at pretty much all temperatures. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and you can, you can cook them and they, they, won't, uh, they won't smoke like crazy. And, and then you can put them in the fridge and they won't solidify. Um, so, so we set out to bring something to the market that could do all those things, but that, that was actually good for us and didn't do so much harm to the environment. Mm. And so how is it cracking into the seed oil market? Is it, uh, rough and tumble like the meat market, right? Like, is there this, uh, a cabal of seed oil companies that are, uh, you know, doing everything they can to keep you out? Probably we haven't, you know, had bricks thrown through our windows or anything yet. Um, but but yeah, it, it, you know, it's largely dominated by a handful of companies that own most of the the market share for oils. It's a big market. It's a, over two hundred billion dollars. It's vegetable oils, broadly speaking, are the most consumed food in the world after rice and wheat, and that's uh, that's a lot of people, you know, eating that product. There hasn't exactly been a lot of innovation in the oil aisle or category in quite some time. You know, besides maybe the introduction of uh, of olive oil in the from Europe to 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 Americans in the last century, or the advent of like Crisco. So yeah, we we felt you know it was it was, it was time for time for an oil change. Um, and Ooh. yeah, the idea of fermentation. You know, when I kind of found out about that, it was sort of light bulb moment. Ah, uh, this this is it. You know, this is what could solve this problem. It just offers an, a totally new way of producing healthy fats sustainably, but not in a way like Crisco or Olestra, if you remember that from the 1990s. Mm-hmm. It, those actually introduced, or, or, or yeah, trans fats, partially hydrog- hydrogenated oils. Those introduce totally new novel compounds to he- the human diet. And when we do that, it doesn't usually end well if all of a sudden a big portion of our calories is coming from you know, some molecules or compounds that we've never before consumed, at least it's a little bit riskier. Um, but fermentation allows us to produce the same fats that are found in all these other healthy sources of, you know, of fat, whether it's an avocado or um, a piece of salmon or whatever, um, but just produced in a super sustainable way. And you get some really uniquely good fat profiles. Mm. And so uh, how, what, what's the strategy to, for the big picture here? Like how, how do you all get to scale? Um, you know, you're doing direct to consumer or D to C. Um, I'm assuming you're guessing that you're probably working with some chefs, right? Maybe some, some different brands to raise awareness. Like, how are you going about it? Our dream is that, you know, McDonald's eventually cooks their French mm. fries in zero acre. Um, but if McDonald's showed up tomorrow and said, Hey, let's start working together. We'd say, we need a little time. You know, we're not, we're not quite there yet from a scale standpoint. Um, but it's also, you know, it's not like we can only sell a few bottles DTC every day and then that's our capacity. You know, it's pretty significant. Um, we, we started on, on the DTC side and, and selling oil to folks online, um, partly because it just allowed us to reach the entire country, you know, essentially overnight once we opened up shop and folks who were interested in a healthier, better tasting, 
a more sustainable cooking oil, you know, could, could come out of the woodwork and, and buy it. Um, it's, it's helped provide a really good foundation for a lot of what we want to do on the B2B side, whether we're talking to restaurants or packaged food companies. We're not just this unknown you know, uh, entity um, that doesn't have any support from consumers. There you know, are now thousands and thousands of people who have bought the oil, love the oil, would love to see the oil in restaurants and packaged foods. So it's, it's a helpful stepping stone. But mm-hmm. um, where where like you know what gets me out of bed in the morning is how do we how do we impact people who aren't listening to podcasts on climate or reading blogs on nutrition yeah. you know and are just going to have their local dose of the daily dose of French fries and and help them out as well and and that requires being at scale and B two B for sure. Mm. Yeah, I love that approach. And um, it seems like you might have also taken that approach with your investors as well, right? You've, uh, what I was told, you know, you kind of let some more individuals in as investors than might normally be the case with uh, with startups, correct? Yeah, we didn't just take money from a few VCs and call it a day. <clears throat> uh, we raised from a number of individuals as well who we thought could be really helpful and influential. Um, and, and they have been, it's, it's, it's been a strategy that I think has worked. Awesome. And so, uh, yeah, let's just touch upon maybe some of the challenges that might be interesting. Like, you know, with any startup, there are always challenges. Um, have there been like, you know, any supply chain issues that you all have encountered, um, you know, during these crazy times of the last year or two, when you, when you all have gone to market, you know, what, what's that experience been like? You know, going to market during a very unique period of time. Yeah. Well, everything's more expensive. That's annoying. <clears throat> you know, even things like <laughs> yeah. cardboard boxes and aluminum bottles and don't even get me started on freight. Yeah, everything's expensive. And as a small player, you know, among a bunch of behemoths in the oil category, yeah. um, we don't have the leverage to, you know, negotiate down to, um, to, you know, very, very small, uh, or low prices. And so we get squeezed a little bit and that's just the way things go when you're small. Um, so as we scale, you know, prices will come down. I think the biggest challenges for us, uh, are twofold. Uh, one is it's just a more expensive product. It's not canola oil or palm oil prices yet. And there are, you know, there are thousands of consumers who have said that's no problem. It's you know worth it and you get what you pay for. And um, someone's paying for it eventually, you know, either in hospital bills or in climate initiatives. Um, there are negative externalities of these bad oil choices. And we, we like to say that if you took those negative externalities into account, zero acre oil is actually the, the most affordable oil that can be purchased. Um, mm. Unfortunately, it's kind of on the consumer to you know, make that decision right, right now. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, one is just we got to bring, bring the price down over time. And, and I think we will. Um, quite quickly here and have some initiatives coming up where the the <clears throat> price will come down pretty considerably. Um, and then the second is just explaining what it is. And most people you know, aren't used to thinking of oil through the lens of fermenting sugar and are more used to just thinking of, you know, I don't know, a coconut or something. Yeah. Um, that said, Canola oil has become very, very accepted, and very few people could tell you that it's from a rapeseed. You know, let alone what a rapeseed is. Um, mm. Similar to Crisco, you know, do most people know that it's partially hydrogenated cottonseed oil? Probably not. They just know that it's the no. brand Crisco. Yeah. Um, 
so you know, it, yeah, but it, it's a new product. Any new product is going to have some, um, you know, people are going to want to understand it, and I, I love that. Uh, it just takes some time, you know, for it to kind of enter the zeitgeist as a totally normal, healthy, sustainable, acceptable food oil. Yeah, and you know what, I I love what you all are doing because it sits at that intersection of health and climate, right? It's not. I think sometimes you know. Although, of course, times have changed over the last two to three years. But when, you know, historically speaking, you're coming at it from a climate angle or lens. Um, sometimes it could be challenging to get adoption just because it's good for the climate. But if you're uh, selling, hey, it's good for your health, uh, that's a whole different story. Even though in my mind, it necessarily shouldn't be because climate is health, but that is how it works uh, with us mentally. Yeah, and I think I think health is is a great way to have a huge climate impact. You know, mm -hmm. it's sort of like the Tesla approach. How many people buy Teslas because they're an you know, electric car that's uh, better for the planet? I don't know the answer to that, but it's certainly not one hundred percent. And how many buy it because it's just a really good car and it's safer and um, you know it's fun to drive and all that. And I think similarly, I mean. Cooking oil is not quite as sexy as uh, you know a high-speed electric car that goes zero to sixty in a few seconds. But um, similarly, you know, even if you could care less about the environment, this is just the best cooking oil out there. Um, mm -hmm. Even if you could care less about your health, you know, it's it's just better performing, higher smoke point, cleaner tasting, yeah. all that. And then you kind of go to the next, like, why do consumers buy? It's <clears throat> uh, it tastes really good. I can afford it. It's good for me. And then yeah. a distant fourth, it's better for, for climate, you know, based on like public polls that yeah. are done. And so if you don't have the first three and you only have the fourth, it's just really tough. We, uh, we're working on the affordability piece. It's for sure better for you. It's better for, you know, it tastes really good and it's better for the climate. Um, and, and so I think that's helpful in, in impacting real change on climate is you can make the selfish decision and it's actually still way better for the planet. Love it. Yeah. And so if everything goes right <laughs> in the next 12 to 18 months, what, what is it looking like for zero acre farms? In 12 to 18 months, uh, if everything goes right. Uh, so we kind of have our goals and then we have our, um, you know, like dream outcomes. So something in between those two would be, mm -hmm. Uh, there are a number of packaged foods that you can turn over and you see our oil right there on the ingredient list. And there are a number of restaurants you can go to where, you know, pick your food. And we have at least one restaurant that's, um, that's cooking that food in our oil, whether mm. it's Mexican food or salads or French fries um, or, you know, anything else. And so if, if we were there in 12 to 18 months, I think, <clears throat> you know, we'd be in a good spot. Um, you know, maybe you can even go to your lo local uh, supermarket and, and pick us up on the shelf instead of having mm -hmm. to buy it uh, online. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd be, I'd be really happy in twelve to eighteen months if, if that were all true. Yeah, and you can plead the fifth here because you might not be able to talk about this. But um, and if that is the case, you look on the back of a, you know, packaged food that has your oil in it. Would it be like ingredient? zero acre farms with that or or you guys probably can't talk about it coming up with a different name 
right for oil it's almost like like canola what is that i i like yeah. now i know That's that it has conundrum. like cotton seed oil in it i had no clue it's just a branding exercise right yeah you know we're both here sipping our meads what would yeah. we call this if we didn't have the name mead or the word exactly mead? we'd probably Bean, call it uh, sorry uh honey based alcohol right honey or based like alcohol that. or yeah. honey alcohol honey yeah i think you'd call it yeah honey honey alcohol honey there'd have to be something denoting that it's like the the source honey and there'd be something denoting that it's alcoholic um so yeah honey honey alcohol or like honey honey wine or fermented honey alcohol something like that yeah so um so may, maybe in the case of the oil it's you know fermented sugarcane oil or something like that um that yeah. would be probably the equivalent coming over from mead um or yeah, or it's zero acre oil, uh, or it's you know cultured oil. Um, mm. I, I don't know the answer long term. It's and there doesn't seem to be a lot of FDA guidance on this. Yeah. And you know this is certainly something that companies in the protein space are are working through as well. Um, I don't I don't know where where it'll all shake out. Or maybe it's just one word. I'm offering some, you know free advice like you asked for any but you know may, maybe it's just uh <laughs> you probably don't want it but it's like hey maybe Let's it's just it. one word you know uh mead crisco um uh, whatever right there's just a word Canola. that yeah exactly something something that describes what it is in one word and people then talk about it like you do this marketing exercise they talk about it they don't really know what the heck it is but it sounds good it's like of course i cook with crisco right yeah. But anyways, that's my yeah. uh, that's my free um, advice you did not ask for. So if you think um, of the word, let me know. <laughs> I might. I might. Maybe I'll just uh, text you a bunch of different words and we'll see if something sticks. Um, so I, I want to <laughs> be um, respectful of your time here uh, since you do have a um, a very small human, which you uh, are you know partially responsible for. And, um, you know, we, we got a puppy and that's, you know, not even close from my understanding to a, uh, to a small human being, but I, I can now relate a little bit at least, um, uh, <laughs> very, 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 very little, but, but, you know, still slightly. Um, so, does, uh, it, I don't know if this is the case for you, but it does help put things into perspective when, you know, we're fighting for the climate and, and for better health, to, to kind of see the next generation there. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I want, I want our puppy to have zero acre oil, right? I don't want I'm consuming Crisco for sure. Like nothing no. but the best. And you, I mean, yeah. you want that dog to you know grow up in a healthy world and not have oceans rise too much, sea levels be yeah. in a good place. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I want to be able to go, yeah, explore the ocean, um, mm -hmm. just like I get to, with all my free time. Um, so. <laughs> Uh, that being said, what are three books that have greatly influenced the way that you approach life? It, it's so hard to pick three because I, I read a lot and I feel like every book kind of has its own little you know piece of piece of wisdom. Um, one that comes to mind because I always am talking to friends about like book recommendations, favorite books, that sort of thing um, is a fiction book actually called hmm. The Three-Body Problem. It's a series. It's a, a three-part series. And it's written by a Chinese author. Um, and I, I have a lot of ties to Chinese culture. 
but it, it's in English. The translator did an incredible job. Uh, Barack Obama uh, really liked the book. And I, I really like what the way he described it, which is, I read this book and my day-to-day problems don't seem so big anymore. And mm-hmm. I think that's where it helped me as well. It's a book that, uh, you know, spans literally billions of years. And, you know, you kind of, it just gives you a lot of perspective. So that, that'll be one of them. Um, three body problem for the perspective it offers just, it's also just a really fun, great science fiction read. Uh, first book's a little slow, but second and third are incredible. And cool. I don't know, a business book, a day-to-day business book. There's a book called Scaling Up. It's not especially well-known or recent, but it just has really good tactical advice for being the CEO of a company, which is just like a really weird job to have. Um, and and then, and then uh, there's a book called Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. It's sort of like <clears throat> the original woo-woo self-help book. And yeah, great. You can get rich by thinking, business leaders right? and, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, that's, <laughs> you can save a lot of time by just yeah, knowing that. Um, yeah, it's about setting goals and intentions and um, you know, believing that something will happen and then, and then it has a better chance of actually happening. Awesome. I like that. Yeah. I just gonna, after this, I'm just gonna sit around, drink my meat and think about getting rich and it's going to happen. Right. I mean, it it just might. It just (laughs) might. Yeah. And, um, our next question is, there there are some other tips in the book though, that are quite helpful. Like having a mastermind group, you know, he goes into Uh detail on a lot of business leaders. Appreciate that. Something I've built and developed as well. And, um, and I, I, you can see reading Think and Grow Rich how there's a lot in kind of modern, you know, business and self help books that are, that are drawn from uh, books like that, or How to Win Friends and Influence People. You know, some of the some of the yeah. OGs. That's a good one. Yeah. May I know anybody in your uh, mastermind group? I'm sure you've crossed paths with at least a few of them. Um, mm-hmm. Other folks in food tech in the Bay Area. Cool. That sounds like fun. Um, I'd like to hang out with you guys sometime. Just, you know, <laughs> eavesdrop and throw out some words for your oil, you know, and see what <laughs> sticks with the masterminds. Um, so next question is, what are three startups that you love and you want everybody else to know about? Yeah, three startups I love. Um, well, th- there are a few that I personally benefit from or look up to. Um one, one is called Levels Health, and Levels just makes it really easy to monitor blood glucose levels. And that may sound like very niche and technical and totally boring. Um, you know, I mentioned as we were beginning to talk, I thought seed oils, um, flowers, and sugars, you know, refined seed oils, flowers, and sugars were sort of like the main culprits behind a lot of health issues. And so Levels really owns kind of those second two and trying to create education around what happens when we eat a ton of refined carbs and sugars. In this mm. in the case of like refined flour in particular, it spikes your blood sugar. And if you keep doing that over and over and over again, it's going to lead to health issues. So they just make it really easy to track all that and see what spikes your blood sugar and kind of, um, you know, t- tie it back to the foods you ate. So levels is doing cool stuff. I also love what they do on like the education piece, tons of great content, um, super smart team. And then, um, Matt Rogers, he was the co-founder of Nest with Tony Fidel. He started this this uh, company that was in like super stealth mode for a while, and actually just recently they <clears throat> launched their product called Mill, 
And Mill is a device that I currently have in my kitchen. Um, and, you know, people can like sign up for it now. And Mill is something, is a device where you can just throw a bunch of food scraps into it. And then every night it, it like dehydrates it and breaks it down and turns it into, uh, over the course of a month, I mean, you can throw a ton of stuff in there. It's not that big but when you take out all the moisture in the water, it turns it into what can ultimately become used for something else. So their whole tagline or motto, I think is something like food is not trash. And mm. so when you're done, you know, when, when, whether it's the pineapple skin or the chicken bones or the orange peel, you know, that that's food. And we typically just kind of like throw it away or throw it in the compost. Um, you can throw it into this and it decomposes it all. And then you can use that in your garden or you can send it back to them and they actually use it as chicken feed so that you don't need to grow, you know, more soy and corn to feed the chickens. You can use this, this, these food scraps. Wait, so you have a mill? Yeah. Oh, super cool. Okay. I, then when you have more time, have a few more questions for you. Cause I'm really curious. And I was actually, uh, that this came up with a, during a conversation today with a founder who was like one of the earlier, uh, team members at nest. And he brought up Matt Rogers and mill and, uh, just super curious about it. And, and one note that's interesting is, well, first of all, compost, if you can in your, uh, wherever you live, a lot of places you can't. And so where you can't, I guess they're using a unique business model where, um, you know, basically the municipality only needs to pay for like, you know, uh, the equipment and distrib distribution of it. And then mill takes care of the rest, which is super interesting. Um, yeah, I think, <clears throat> I think they have pretty big, exciting aspirations. Yeah. I can imagine it's aesthetic as well. Oh, oh, it's, it's a sexy yeah. trash can. <laughs> cool. <laughs> um, and so what is the third company? Um, it's, there's a company called Bowery Farming. They were, they were an early leader and, you know, continue to be a leader in vertical farming. Um, I love what they're doing in food, you know, pesticide, pesticide free, just making really good greens and veggies. Um, and, and the reason I mention them is because, I, I, it's really hard to introduce this totally new way of producing something, you know, like indoor vertical farm versus mm -hmm. like outdoor, you know, seeing a farmer in dirt and all that. And, um, so I empathize with them and it's been cool to see their growth as, as they basically like define and grow this new way of producing really healthy, more sustainable produce. Um, so yeah, so levels mill and Bowery. Awesome. And to cap things off, are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave all of our listeners with? Mead is delicious and I highly recommend it. <laughs> it's so easy. You just get a big, big old mason jar, squeeze or scoop a bunch of raw honey, add some water, you know, cover it, put it on your shelf and give it a swirl a couple times a day. Um, and it turns into a very delicious light alcoholic beverage. Um, also, Matt, we, you know, we touched on this throughout, throughout the show, but, um, you know, think about the climate impact of the foods you're eating. The foods you're eating can have a really big impact on the climate. Um, and similarly, you know, when you're making those decisions of eating sustainable foods, there's so much thought that goes into like, what should I be eating for health? What should I be eating for health? You know, and it's so controversial, just simplify, eat nutrient dense foods, and avoid seed oils, don't eat too much refined sugar and flour, and then you know, eat foods that are good for the planet, and you're probably like 90% of the way there. 
And use some zero acre oil or whatever. And we use call some it. zero. Yeah. Use, use whatever <laughs> we end up calling it. Um, but all I know for sure is that it's available now at zeroacre.com yeah. ready for you do to it. give it a try. And if you do, let me know what you think. Do it. Well, thank you so much for your time. I greatly appreciate it. And until next time, cheers. Cheers. Thanks, Matt. Thank you so much for listening. The resources that we mentioned and everything else we talked about, drink recipes, various people, companies, so on and so forth, will all be linked on the show notes on our Mothership's website at climatechcircle.com. If you want to write us, our address is m at climatechcocktails.com. You could follow us on Twitter at CT underscore cocktails and on Instagram at hashtag climatechcircle. You can reach me personally by carrier pigeon on my LinkedIn at forward slash Matthew J. Myers or at one of our in-person happy hour events. In the meantime, keep the dream alive and do your part to make the world a better place for 100% of humanity. And thanks for tuning in. Cheers. Cheers.